I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lisa. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Father, um, please help, help us not to miss the significance of what this passage is about, about this personal encounter where you show up for the first time in a long time to rescue and redeem your people, and how it really is a picture pointing toward how you came after a long time of silence to rescue and redeem your people in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy in the good news of your gospel, Lord, I pray that it would just break through our hard hearts and give us hearts of flesh this morning. Give us joy in you. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, um, as you know by this point in the service, because we've talked about it a lot, we are in a sermon series on the book of Exodus. We are primarily focusing this series around the life of Moses. And we're coming to a passage this morning that my guess is to everyone in here, you've at least heard of it, that you've got some kind of baseline familiarity with it, Moses and the burning bush. But the problem with passages like these that we're so familiar with, we can really miss the enormity of what's taking place because something incredibly significant is taking place in this passage. Because Moses is having an encounter with God, a personal encounter with God, speaking face-to-face -face, as if we're going to hear later, as if they are friends. 
And God gave us this to be more than just a history lesson, but he gave us this passage so that we can know that we can encounter God too, that we can have a personal encounter with the living God. Just take a minute and think about that, that we can have that. And that's pretty amazing if you think about it. And I know the inner skeptic in us is all going to say, yeah, right. I mean, we can never have anything like that. But given this passage and really given the entire biblical narrative, we're told that not only can we have these encounters with God, but they actually can be and should be a part of the normative Christian life. Dallas Willard wrote this on this in his book, Hearing God, and this is what he said. Today, I continue to believe that people are meant to live in an ongoing conversation with God, speaking and being spoken to. I believe that this can be abundantly verified in experience when rightly understood. God's visits to Adam and Eve in the garden, Enoch's walk with God, and the face-to-face conversations between Moses and Jehovah are all commonly regarded as highly exceptional moments in the religious history of humankind. Aside from their obviously unique historical role, however, they are not meant to be exceptional at all. Rather, they are examples of the normal human life God intended for us. God's indwelling his people through personal presence and fellowship. Let that sink in for a minute. And let me ask you this. Does that describe you? Does that describe me, God indwelling us through personal presence and fellowship. I will say that sometimes, yes, it does describe me. Has it described me at specific times in my life? Definitely yes, and definitely no. And my guess is that many of you would answer in much of the same way. Maybe it was when you initially became a Christian or when you were in college, or maybe you're experiencing him in this way now, and if that's the case, I am so thankful. But I do believe that not many of us, if maybe none of us, would describe this as our normal Christian life. But again, this is the life that God intended for us. As Willard mentioned earlier, think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin came and took its toll on God's creation and our relationship with him. Every day God would come into the garden and he would walk and talk with Adam and Eve, living in perfect community and unbroken fellowship, just like he enjoyed in the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But paradise was lost, and so was the unbroken relationship that we were meant to enjoy with our Creator. But we have good news. This side of heaven, it is truly possible to encounter God. To encounter him in ways that can change our lives and even change the world around us. We're going to see over the next few weeks that it did for Moses and the same can be true for us. So as I said in our passage, we've got Moses' first encounter with God. Did he believe in God? Yes. We were already told that he was the God of his ancestors. He would have known, probably believed, and maybe even worshipped him, but had he encountered him before? Based on our passage this morning, it appears that he probably had not. But in Exodus 3, this is exactly what is happening, and we can find a blueprint for us on how we can encounter God, and we are shown often how we usually do. 
So this morning we're going to look specifically at three things, and there's certainly more, but we're going to focus on these three, and this is the outline that I've put in your bulletin. First, we're going to see an unexpected detour, or actually detours. Second, an unmanageable God, and then lastly, an unimaginable commission. So let's take a look at our first point, these unexpected detours. And so not to re-preach my sermon from last week, but if you weren't here or if I just was really boring, I do think we need to give a little context to our passage this morning. So Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, and they had grown in number, and so much so that the Pharaoh was afraid that if they kept growing, they may end up actually overtaking Egypt. And so he decided to take matters into his own hands. He decided first to enslave them, and it didn't slow anything down. And so then he was going to kill all the newborn baby Hebrew boys at birth. And then his final solution was, after the male babies are born, to throw them into the Nile. And so Moses was born during a genocide. And so when he was born, his mother kept him as long as she could. And when she realized she could not keep him hidden any longer, she took a basket, she waterproofed it, and she set it in the reeds of the Nile. And so Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe, and one of her servants saw the basket, and she brought it over to the princess. And when she opened it, she realized it was a Hebrew baby, and she had compassion on him. So the baby's older sister was following at a distance, and she came over to the princess to see if she would like, if the princess would like her to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby. And the princess says, yes, that sounds good. And so Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mom, brings her back, and the princess says, I want you to take this baby, I want you to nurse him and raise him, and I will pay you to do so. So fast forward a few years later, uh, Moses comes back to live with the princess, and she raises him as her own son, and she gives him the name Moses. So later when Moses is around 40 years old, he's outside and he witnesses an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And it says that he sees no one looking around and so he kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. The very next day, Moses goes out and sees two Hebrew men fighting. And he tries to intervene and one of them says to him, who put you in charge? Do you want to kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? So the secret was out, and Pharaoh wanted Moses dead. And so he flees to Midian, where he married and lived for the next 40 years of his life, tending his father-in-law's sheep and living in complete insignificance and anonymity. You know, if you think about it, Moses' life was one big detour. He was born to a Hebrew family, and he was supposed to be killed as an infant, but he was not. He grew up in an Egyptian palace, and he was supposed to be an aristocrat, but he wasn't. Killing an Egyptian in defense of a fellow Hebrew, he could have been a Hebrew, but he wasn't. And as our passage starts out, he is a poor, homeless nobody, an 80-year-old failure who was supposed to be in the prime of his life, but he isn't. He can't even afford his own sheep. Moses, from all outward appearances, appears and seems to be an incredible disappointment. So when I was growing up, I loved sports. And if you look at my athletic career, it was a bit of a bell curve. When I was young, I was super clumsy and awkward and terrible. And as I got older, I got a little bit better. And by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was enjoying some success in football specifically. The future looked bright. I was excited. Our team was excited. And even my small hometown was excited. 
But over the next two years, I had injuries and coaching changes, and my senior year, I was on another losing team playing a different position than I have ever played before. So after the end of the season, a few of us were sitting around a table at lunch, and we were kind of jokingly giving each other senior superlatives. And so we would go around, and you would say, well, you're most likely to do so-and-so, and and you're most likely to be so-and-so, and And we were laughing and having fun. And so when it came to my turn, one of my friends said to me, oh, yours is obvious. And I was like, this is going to be good. It's going to be like most popular, most likely to succeed, you know, most likely to be a millionaire, something just completely awesome. And he says this to me. He said, your senior superlative is you are the biggest disappointment in Rogers High School football history. And everyone laughed and agreed. And I sort of laughed and pretended to agree. But at this point in Moses' life, you could make an argument that he was the biggest disappointment in Israel's history. As I thought about Moses, I thought about a line from the book Lonesome Dove. He wondered if all men felt such disappointment when thinking of themselves. He didn't know. Maybe most men didn't think of themselves. I can't help but think that this must have been how Moses felt about his life. Disappointment, failure, uh, so much potential but nothing. His life had been one huge detour and not one for the better at this point. But as I mentioned for Moses, there's not one detour, but there's two. And we can see the second detour in verses 2 and 3 of our passage. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And so that phrase there in verse 3, turned aside, can also be translated as go over. But in the original Hebrew, it literally means detour. And so Moses is going about his business, and he notices something strange. And he says, oh, I'm going to detour, and I'm going to go see it. And what was it? It was a burning bush. Now, this would have been incredibly common in the desert heat, but this bush burned and burned and would not extinguish. So why a burning bush? Like, what's the point of a burning bush? Well, essentially, a burning bush is a category buster. It's a paradigm shifter. It's something that doesn't make sense in Moses' normal world. And so he decided to turn aside, to detour, and to go look at this strange thing. And this is where his encounter with God takes place. All right, so what on earth does any of this have to do with us. Well, I will tell you that the places that we are most likely to encounter God is when we find ourselves in similar detours. More often not, more often than not, we encounter God when we are in a place in life that we would not have chosen. When we are confronted with our failure, our shame, or our disappointment, when our lives are heading in a direction that we don't like, we didn't choose, or we don't understand. Dr. Tim Keller wrote on this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and this is what he said. It is an exaggeration to say that no one finds God unless suffering comes into their lives, but it is not a big one. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Over the years, I also came to realize that adversity did not merely lead people to believe in God's existence. It pulled those 
who had already believed into a deeper experience of God's reality, love, and grace. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. And maybe that's where you find yourself now, in the furnace of affliction. I know for a fact, and speaking to many of you, as you reflect back on your own life and you recall times of encounters with God, the times when you felt him most present, they were in times of suffering or in detours. I know that I have. But yet there's that other encounter, that, or excuse me, that other detour that led to Moses' encounter. For him, it was a burning bush. And again, a burning bush is strange. It's out of the ordinary. It doesn't make sense. It's a paradigm buster. And oftentimes, the same thing happens for us, and the same thing happens to us. And I don't want to get into too much detail about this because I've shared this before, but my burning bush was on my first trip to Uganda sitting in a children's prison on concrete holding a two-year-old little girl as she slept in my arms and I was bawling my eyes out. I didn't have a category for it. I had no idea what was going on. At that point in my life, like Moses, I was just living my life. I was operating as if everything was normal. And then I went to Africa and I was confronted with injustice that didn't make sense that I didn't have a category for. I couldn't get my head around it. And I started asking questions. Why do I believe what I say I believe? Is any of this real? Is God real? Because in that hellhole, he did not feel real. And he certainly did not feel loving. But guess what? In that prison, God showed up. Like Moses, in my burning bush moment, I detoured. It took me out of my normal life. I turned aside, and I encountered a God in that prison. I encountered him in a way that I knew I would never be the same. And so Moses, on detour, takes a detour, and God shows up. And when he does, Moses is confronted with the reality of the God of his ancestors, that God is this God who is a category buster, that's a paradigm shifter, and he is completely unmanageable. Let's look again at our passage starting in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them." So in those six verses, it's really easy to miss, but if you pay attention, you'll notice that it seems that God is full of contradictions. And that's why I think the metaphor of a burning bush is so appropriate to describe God. And I realized this on Wednesday night, sitting around a fire pit at our community group, coaching group, I found myself attracted to the, the fire, the beauty of the flames, 
the pattern, the glow of the embers. But a couple of times the wind would shift and it would blow in my face and I'd have to get up and move. And then a couple of other times Scott Dumbler put firewood on it and I got really hot and sweaty and uncomfortable. And I realized that this is a great metaphor for our God and the God of Moses because fire is beautiful and it's attractive. Again, right, we don't need fires to heat our homes, but we keep, we keep building fireplaces. And that's because we're attracted to fire. But at the same time, fire can kill you. It can melt you and it can turn you to ashes and isn't the same true of God. In 1 John, we're told that God is love. But in Psalm 24, we're told that the Lord is a warrior mighty in battle. Later in Exodus, we're going to see that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It seems so contradictory. Notice even how God calls out to Moses. He addresses him by repeating his name, Moses, Moses. The doubling of someone's name at that time was a term of endearment. But what does he say? Does he say, Moses, Moses, come here and give me a hug? No, he says, Moses, Moses, stay away. Get away from me. Don't come near me. And he goes on to point out his holiness. Take off your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. And Moses was so afraid that he wouldn't look at God. And so then what does God say next? What does he lead with next? He says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them. Do you hear how loving that is? How tender that is. Those are the words of a loving father who would do anything to save his children. God is holy and love. He is beauty and terror. He is enormous and personal. He's a paradigm shifter. He's completely unmanageable. And he blows through every category of what we think God should be. One commentator wrote this. He said, it's an awesome thing to come into the presence of the living God. When Moses met God in the burning bush, he was not simply gaining new information about God. He was encountering God himself, God in all his greatness. He was meeting the glorious God who blazes with splendor. He was meeting the eternal God who is sufficient unto himself. He was meeting the holy God who is perfect in his purity. One would not expect such a great and glorious God to have the slightest interest in mere mortals, especially moral failures like Moses, yet... The holy God of the burning bush has an unbreakable love for his unholy people, and he revealed himself to Moses in order to maintain his personal saving relationship with the children of Israel. Which makes sense if you think about when Moses asked God his name, God responded, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. Notice he didn't say, well, tell them I'm whoever you want me to be. Or he didn't say, tell them I'm the God of love or I'm the God of whatever or tell them I'm a warrior or I'm the redeemer. And this is what we typically default to, right? Putting God in some category. But what God is saying is that you can't keep me in a category because I am all of these things and more. 
so much so that the only way to describe himself is to compare him to himself. The prophet Jeremiah prayed, there is none like you, O God. And for us, right here and right now, to encounter God in a real way, we have to realize the same thing. And this is a problem for us here in the West because churches here in our culture typically live in two ditches. You've got more liberal churches that say, hey, God is love, everyone is welcome, there's no judgment here, there's no wrath. But there's churches in the other ditch that says that God is a God of wrath and judgment, and you better do your part not to be sinners in the hands of an angry God. But that isn't the God in the burning bush. He says, I am all of those things and more. He says, I am beautiful and mysterious. I am eternal and unchangeable. I am self-existent and dangerous all at the same time. Just like the burning bush, I am who I am. And for us to encounter God, we have to come to the same realization. And so what this means practically, if this is the true God, then he's going to disagree with you. Because you may say, well, I love the love stuff. I really like that, but not the judgment. But that isn't God. And the opposite is true as well. If you don't have a God that disagrees with you, then I will tell you that is a God of your imagination. That is a God of your own making, not the great I am. And if you, and if that is your experience of him, if scripture has never challenged you and disrupted you, then you have never truly encountered God. So to encounter God, it often happens in the detours of our life and confusion and maybe even wondering. Do you feel like you are wandering around? Do you feel like you don't belong? Do you feel at times like you are lost and confused? And God lovingly brings us at times these burning bushes to break through our paradigms, things that don't make sense. Can you recall something like that? Have you experienced something like that? Maybe your body's not operating as you would hope it would. Maybe you had an unexpected tragedy. Maybe you had an unexpected grace that came into your life. Maybe like me, you were confronted with injustice and suffering in a way that shook you to your senses. And we need to be confronted by this unmanageable God, a God that one commentator describes in this way. When confronted by the real God, we discover that God is more terrifying and more loving than we could ever have imagined and more than any God we could dream up. So this is the God that we are introduced to in Exodus. And he is not some cookie cutter God in a box. And now we need to look at our third point and we need to recognize our unimaginable commission. And let's read again, starting in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But God said to Moses, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so we've already touched on this a little bit. God reveals who he is, this crazy paradigm-busting right? category, just blower-upper, or however you would say that. This huge, enormous, yet personal God. And he says, I'm going to do this great thing, 
and you're going to be the one to do it. You're going to lead my people out of slavery. This huge task, overwhelming. Again, Moses is full of shame and doubt and disappointment. And he says, hey, look, I don't think I'm your guy. I'm not the one to do this. But here's the thing, like Moses, we too are called to go. We are called to go to do hard things, and we are called to go to hard places. Not as hard as leading a million people out of slavery to the world's greatest superpower, but we are called and commissioned to live our lives to bring God glory and good to our neighbors, just like the Exodus. Now, I can tell you, as a parent of teenagers, to raise our family in a way that we believe to be right, it is swimming upstream. Working with integrity is swimming upstream. To live with biblical sexual ethics is swimming upstream. To forgive others and not hold grudges is swimming upstream. To honor God with our finances is swimming upstream. To live as a follower of Jesus to the outside world looks crazy. Like one man leading a nation out of slavery. But here's what we need to realize. And we've already talked about this. When Moses says, I don't think I'm the man to do this. God doesn't give him a pep talk. He doesn't say, you'll do fine. He doesn't remind him of his perfect combination of Jewish ancestry and Egyptian education. He doesn't snap his finger and instantly give Moses courage. No, he says, Eric, who's the the, uh, grammar police for me, in the baptism I said four words. It's actually five words. God says, I will be with you. And this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. The fact that God goes with us, because in Islam, Allah doesn't go with his people. Buddha doesn't go with his people. But in the Christian gospel, God does. And that's what makes Moses' commission and our commission unimaginable. The very fact that God would go with us, that he would dwell with us, and we're going to see over the next few weeks in in Exodus, he absolutely did go with Moses, and he absolutely goes with us. Well, how can we know? How are these just more than words on a page? Well, we need to realize that there's actually a bigger miracle taking place larger than the burning bush in this passage. Again, the bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. But the bigger story here is that the bush is on fire, but Moses is not consumed. Remember, Moses is a nobody. He's a murderer who hasn't repented. How can he stand before a holy God who does not, will not, and cannot tolerate sin? And how can we Encounter God, again, the normal Christian life, encountering God, how can we encounter him and not be destroyed? Well, here's the key. In the burning bush, there's an angel, but not just an angel. In the burning bush, there's the angel. All throughout Scripture, whenever you see an angel appear, the people that they are appearing to are always tempted to worship the angel. But the angel always says, get up, don't worship me. I'm a creature just like yourself, but not this angel. Because this angel in the flames is the angel of the Lord mediating for God, speaking for God. And why is this significant? Well, because all throughout the Old Testament, the only way that we could have a relationship with God is if someone mediates for us. 
we would need to have a substitute to take your punishment. And so sacrifices were made into the fire of God's holiness. But there's a change in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're told that there's one final sacrifice that was made, one mediator and substitute that threw himself into the fire as our substitute. And who is that? Well, we are told in John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now notice here, that's not a grammatical mistake that Eric's going to try to point out to me at some point. Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ is saying, the I am in the burning bush was, is, and always will be me. And when he said this, they wanted to kill him for it, and they ultimately would. And it was on the cross that Jesus Christ, the great I am, our substitute, was consumed. That's how we can stand before a holy God and not be consumed. He was consumed so that we, as a sinful people, encountered a holy God, we can be loved and not killed on the spot. And when we look to his sacrifice to mediate that wrath of God that we deserve, we too can encounter God and not be destroyed. This is how we ultimately encounter God, and it's how we re-encounter God. It's how we kind of light our bush back on fire to see the wrath that our sins deserve, that the holy God came down to redeem his people and to redeem them home, to, to bring them home. We don't deserve him, and yet he was consumed for us. We encounter God through his amazing grace. So how do we respond to this grace? Like boots on the ground, what do we do? Well, practically, we need to go to his word and let him continue to break through every category we have him. We need to allow God to tell us himself that I am with you. And if you don't know where to start, a great resource, it's a free app you can get on your phone called Lectio 365. And a few of us are doing it here in the church. And it's a great devotional resource that gives you a framework to encounter God. It's a way to shape our lives by praying through the Bible every day. There's guiding, guidance in the morning and there's guidance in the evening. It is a fantastic resource. I can't recommend it enough. But we also need to remember what God said to Moses. He said, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. He says, I know. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. I will bring them up. He said, their cry has come to me, and I have seen their affliction. And we need to do the same. We need to cry out to God. We need to ask to encounter him. I've included some uh, questions for reflection at the bottom of your bulletin uh, this week that you can reflect on as you ask God to encounter him, just to kind of guide your hearts and your mind. And We need to know, ultimately, without a shadow of a doubt, that he sees you, he hears you, he knows you, he has come down, and if you cry out to him, he will bring you up, and he will never leave you. 
He will always go with you, and he will never forsake you. And that is unimaginable. And that is amazing. Let me pray for us. God, you tell Moses to go, and then you say, I will never leave you. I will be with you. When you were here in the person of Jesus Christ, your great commission, you told the disciples, and you tell us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And then you say, and know that I will be with you always, even until the ends of the earth. And so we can know that wherever we go, you go with us. Lord, I pray you would give us the courage to face you in our detours of life, that you would slow us down to recognize the unordinary things that you send to get our attention and that we would cry out to you and that we would encounter you in a way that you intended since the very beginning, Father. Thank you that you have come down. Thank you that you tell us that you are our God and we are your people. In your name I pray.